to a bark, a brig, and a schooner shape history. I am your host, Nick Hardesty. So today we have kind of an interesting episode on a topic that I think a lot of us are familiar with. If you've been involved in sailing and tall ships, you're certainly familiar with the concepts of luck and superstition, whether it's departing on a Friday or leaving a hatch open, whistling. We've all got our own little superstitions that we use, and many of them can trace their origins back uh, centuries. And so today I have a guest with me, Brooke Grassberger. Brooke is uh, getting close to wrapping up her PhD at Brown University, and she's looking at the spiritual lives of sailors, which really encompasses all of these uh, aspects of luck and superstition and folklore and religion. So I'm really excited to have this opportunity to talk with Brooke and get her kind of insights on it from uh, a personal sense and also, you know, an academic sense based on the work that she has been doing. All right. Uh, welcome, Brooke. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and kind of what you're, you're studying and, and writing and focusing on right now? So uh, right now I'm in the sixth year of my PhD in history. I am in the process of writing my dissertation and also continuing research given the sort of COVID archival shutdown that happened while I was in the middle of it. And my dissertation is all about, as I've come to think of it, I would have said a couple of years ago, the spiritual lives of sailors. And now I think I would say sort of the faith of sailors as they, you know, move through the world's oceans and as they live in port. Is there a certain era that you're looking at or is it like really widespread or what's your kind of your focus years? So I look at uh, the 19th century as a whole and I use British, Dutch and American records. But of course, that covers a much wider range of geography than just the places where the archives are housed. And yeah, I think the 19th century in particular is a pretty interesting time because you have basically from beginning to end, the gradual replacement of sail with steam-powered vessels. Um, so it's this really interesting place to study sail and sailors as they're kind of dealing with this big technological shift, which brought about you know a lot of changes, both of course in terms of labor, speed, all this stuff, but also I think in terms of religion and spirituality. Mm -hmm. Now, what inspired you to get involved in this area of study? How did this, you know? subject find its way to you? So I think, you know, I, I grew up in uh, Salem, Massachusetts, and uh, I had a, a mother who would always tell me, you know, Brooke, people talk about the Salem witch trials all the time, but never forget, this was once one of America's foremost ports. Uh, and so I think I was sort of conditioned to think about the sea maritime history from an early age. And uh, her side of the family as well has always been like my grandfather worked at Electric Boat submarine company was in the navy he was a sailor did sailing um and i did some sailing when i was younger i worked for a little while as a sailing instructor so i was always around it and was fascinated by the sorts of remnants of the kinds of things that i look at now that are still very present in the sailing world i think if you you know talking to anyone who works on ships in, in many different ways there's this sort of power of the sea that is still quite present. I remember one, one story that really drew me into thinking about this, which started really as my undergraduate uh, thesis, 
was my uncle who works at North Sales and was for a while being hired to like crew on these really long, like transatlantic, transoceanic races. And he told a story about a skipper on one of these races who one of the crew began to refer to as a Jonah and who was considered sort of a bad luck figure on board this extremely modern, well technologically supported voyage. And that really, really fascinated me and pulled me into thinking about this. And I think that's part of the reason too, I look at the 19th century you can see how these things change, but also how there's a lot of things that remain, even as technology in the eyes of some people should push these kinds of things out of the way. I always bristle a little just because my son's name is Jonah. So when I hear that, like, <laughs> I don't know, I was just watching some old sailing movie and that's where everyone's yeah. pointing at someone like he's a Jonah. And yeah. Kind of yeah. Gave me right. a chuckle thinking about my son's name. But I do, I love what you said about Salem, just for that fact that I think, you know, there's just the really compelling stories of the witch trials there. And that's really, you know, mm -hmm. seems to be Salem's mark on the world. But there's also these super compelling stories, you know, connected to sailing and maritime history. And I don't know why, yes. I mean, I guess the, it's the word I'm looking for the fantastic nature of the witch trials like really appeals to a broad audience. But I do think mm -hmm. that, you know, it's a bummer that that maritime history isn't really acknowledged too much, you know, outside of the area for the most part. Yeah. And it's actually very, it's really interesting too, you know, cause even though I grew up in Salem, I knew about this because of my family and not because of school. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though it's like very, I think this is true for the maritime world in general is that it's really cut off from things like, you know, the public school experience, yeah. right? It's become this much more stratified area that only applies to like a very thin group of people mm -hmm. as, a, as opposed to something that like anyone who would have been growing up in Salem would have been interacting in some way with the waterfront, working at all sorts of different levels and in all different ways with the maritime world. Yep. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. So how do you see spirit, spirituality and religion operating in your work? So there's a, there's a couple of different ways that I like to think about this. One is that generally when I think about religion, I sort of link that to the land-based and sort of institutionalized Protestant Christianity that was sort of the mainstream faith background for the three countries that I look at. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's uh, lots of, it's not all, the same, you know, there's lots of difference in like the Dutch reformed church versus let's say Methodists who are working, a lot of them work to sort of convert sailors. Um, but it sort of provides the generalized background and that can, that informs a lot of ways that people tend to think about the spiritual world and about sort of the uh, relationship of sailors to proper religion. Mm -hmm. So this is one thing that I will look at is uh, the efforts of like missionaries and uh, evangelists who see sailors as in need of spiritual rescue and who do all sorts of things like distribute tracts, create reading rooms and sailors' homes and try to um, like encourage captains who sort of had the power to decide whether or not they performed services or held biblical readings on ship. And it's, um, it's something that I think many people at the time saw it as being very much missing from sailors' lives. Mm -hmm. um, and especially at this time in the 19th century, when a lot of this 
uh, these strains of Christianity became heavily moral um, and involved in like a lot of connected things like temperance movements, uh, where it's 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 about sort of living this whole life as this sort of a proper citizen. And uh, sailors present a lot of difficulty for that. But I also want to acknowledge here that there were sailors who were Christian and who uh, lived by those precepts and who saw themselves as in opposition to a sort of more generalized culture that existed on board ships. Uh, And then when I think in terms of spirituality, I'm thinking more in terms of a sort of much wider current of faith that is informed not just by these sort of religious contexts from which sailors come, but also by the conditions of life and labor at sea and the sort of intermediate times in port, which are uh, create this very, very unique rhythm and way of interacting with the world. So that by being, not just by being at sea, but by like the way that you're treated in port and see like the sort of overall rhythm of life, including both of those, both of those things sort of create this very distinct way of seeing the world spiritually. Mm -hmm. That's much more in line with things that people call folklore or superstition, but which I'm really interested in seeing as a sort of more overarching more overarching way of dealing with the various uncertainties and conditions which sailors live in and which are not fully able to be uh, sort of separated out and made distinct from everything else is, okay, this is like, this is sailors at work and this is sailors having superstitions and this is sailors doing prayer or this is sailors uh, drinking in a bar. Like to me, all those things are very, very intimately connected with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I think that, and this is one thing I've always found fascinating about this world is the the dichotomy of being out at sea, you know, particularly when you think about whaling ships and cargo ships that were going out and could be gone, you know, in the latter days of whaling could be gone for five or six years that mm-hmm. you are weirdly isolated you know, on a, on a voyage going across the Atlantic or the Pacific, like extremely isolated, but yet you have this narrow space of people surrounding you. And so on one hand, you're, you're, you're isolated, but intimately surrounded by people. Um, yeah. yes. And it sounds like you feel like that kind of impacted the spirituality of, of the group. Yeah, definitely. Um, because I think that like these, that that particular sort of like combination of isolation and compression, I think maybe mm-hmm. is the other word I might use to think of that, yeah. is this, it creates this necessity for a, a sort of joining together, right? Like to create like a sort of culture that sailors can, can share with each other, even because you have on these voyages, like people of many, many different backgrounds that are coming together to work on these ships. And I don't want to, by saying that, I don't want to suggest that there's some sort of like utopic existence of like yeah. sailors living in like beautiful fellowship because um, there's, yeah, there's, there's conflicts between sailors of various kinds, um, whether it's sort of individual, it could be religious or ethnic or racial, but at the same time, there is a real kind of union that exists partly by necessity in these spaces. And then that gives people a sort of common way of perceiving the world around them that doesn't, that might not exist or 
in some ways I could say that almost definitely wouldn't exist if they had sort of met as individuals, you know, meeting on a street, meeting in a bar, however their lives might have crossed paths if they had been in different professions. I did an episode recently with Skip Finley who wrote about black whaling captains and it was kind of that Mm -hmm. thing of, you know, once you were on the water, what really mattered was, can you, you know, safely operate the vessel? Can you safely kill a whale? Can you safely (laughs) get back to shore? And while you're there, that's really all that matters. It doesn't really matter what you look like when all of this is going down. Um, So the terrestrial world and then the sea-based world are so so sharply, you know, differentiated from each other in that way where you're talking about of like, there's still these, you know, cultural things ingrained in your head of who are good people and who are bad people and who are uh, equal people, so to speak, in on the ship when you're trying to get through a storm. Uh, it really doesn't matter what, you know, the land-based law says about who you can interact or who you can look in the eye. Yes. That doesn't matter until you're yep. back on land. And then all of a sudden it's different though, when you're back on land, it's, you know, it's a yes. weird mix. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think like in that, exactly that, what you said about this, like being able to like make it safely, to do this safely, to preserve yourselves and the ship, which is also in that sense yourselves, because it, you know, provides you with your, your means of survival that allows sailors to sort of be able to see things in common that they wouldn't otherwise. And I think that that's a, a big part of what I'm interested in is these sort of, when you read this, you read, I read this in a lot of records, you know, with the, the old salt or the old sailors or the old tars, however it gets phrased in, in particular languages or in particular times, what they pass down to other, other newer sailors so that sailors can learn about like, okay, you see, mother carries chickens and you know that there's going to be a storm coming shortly you leave port on a friday and you know to be cautious about the rest of this voyage because there might be some sort of luck that's that's twisted a little bit for you yeah i want to jump back to that but i want to just acknowledge something that you said a few minutes ago that i think is really important is kind of dispelling the notion that it was, you know, sailors were rowdy, undisciplined, constantly drunk, immoral people. When you think about particularly like the age of sail and going through kind of the end of, of the whaling generation, basically, because the level of discipline that you needed, you know, if you're drunk mm-hmm. and you're going aloft and trying to, to, to manage sails, there's a pretty good chance you're going to fall off and die. And if you're hanging off the side of the ship and you fall in the water and you're somewhere in in the Southern Ocean or or wherever, like your chances of survival aren't great. So I do like that you mentioned that. And I think that came to light, particularly for me, reading about wives that accompanied whalers on voyages and Mm -hmm. how a lot of them would do, you know, they weren't just looking out at the sea. I mean, they were doing Bible studies and you know, teaching people to read, you know, via the Bible. And so religion is pretty deeply ingrained in a lot of these ships. Um, So I'm glad that you mentioned that. I think that's an important thing to kind of recognize. Um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when you read records written about sailors, I mean, there's a, I I just read this, this uh, really fascinating journal from um, uh, the supercargo of a merchant vessel which is returning from Lisbon and is wrecked on Muscogee Island mm-hmm. off Martha's Vineyard. 
And the, the author writes that he chuckles because, you know, the sailors come forward and, and ask for, uh, or sorry, they, they come aft and ask for grog because they've been denied their, their uh, ration by the sort of wreck in itself. And he's just like, oh, sailors, you know, they, no matter what happens, that they don't, they don't care about anything. And this sort of attitude of them is sort of like unfeeling, unthinking people, almost creatures in a way. They almost become written about in this creaturely kind of way. When you're, when you look at that and like, okay, these are people coping with the after effects of a disaster. They're sort of able to still assert their own sort of self-interest and that they are the ones, by the way, who have to remain on board the vessel while the officers go and get a boat and get help. And uh, I think that like seeing these in the context of like, you know, people who are advocating for themselves and who are, um, yeah, trying to sort of have some sort of maybe you could call it community that might be going a little far uh, in the midst of this kind of disastrous, often disastrous area of work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And it's funny because you think about now, I have to imagine, I've fortunately not been on any shipwrecks. Um, but, but I have to imagine that now there's going to be all sorts of safety things to go over and there's going to be debriefings and chances are there's going to be, you know, therapy sessions and, and all of these things you would think about now. And then you just gave me this great mental picture of these people being like, can we just get some like rum or something here? Like, you know, we're, we're, we're barely hanging on here. So it's kind of interesting. Exactly. Uh, and I think, yeah, dr- uh, the drinking in particular, you know, when I when I started archival research, it wasn't something I was planning to look at. But I, a lot of the things that I, I do am looking specifically for, like these mentions are, are very few and far between. But I ended up looking at at drinking a lot, drinking and drunkenness and the sort of I think it, it has this like really heavily ritualized place in sailor life mm-hmm. that I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to overvalorize because I think, you know, there are certain ways in which like the, the ration gets, you know, used or attempted to use as, as a means of control and can be almost as like enforced kind of alcoholism. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to deny the place that like that it has that's important in the lives of sales for communal activity, uh, for marking particular momentous occasions, things like, you know, crossing into the Arctic Circle becoming a blue nose, like this new kind of sailor and receiving like an extra shot as a a reward of this. Um, So it has this really, really important place in in sailor life. And I think in in terms of thinking about them spiritually as well. I think that, and it's funny, I've never heard anyone phrase this the way you did, but I think that it's so perfect. The concept of alcohol as ritual and as a a form of control and I've got to imagine somebody's dug into this somewhere and if not wow what a space to to take over but but yeah that idea of it as as a form of control is really interesting and it's I guess alternately it's the carrot or the stick depending on how you want to discipline your crew denying them one of their like little creature comforts on a on a voyage that kind of just blew my mind a little bit I've never thought about it so much in that way yeah and I think there's a lot of connection to you know things in the 19th century even things that might happen today about how people regulate or or control what you could call I guess like uh, um, or what I would might call like minor vices Yep. Things that are not great for you, like, you know, smoking cigarettes, but on the other hand, provide 
some form of relief in the face of a world that is extremely difficult to deal with. Yeah. Um, and this, that the sort of like, especially legislation of the poor and like wanting to make these sorts of health or moral health. I mean, those things often go very closely together choices yeah. for people. Um, it's like, no, we're going to make you, we're going to make you better and we're going to make you healthier. But uh, also like, know there 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 has to be some way of being able to deal with it and unfortunately that method did not often come in the form of oh we're gonna uh raise your wages and uh we're gonna make your your sleeping conditions but more space better you know yeah we're gonna make your food better Uh, those were not often the plate the replacements for these kinds of these kinds of things that makes sense yeah so religion so how does religion appear among sailors kind of in your area of focus on these, these Western ships? So I think there's a sort of a spectrum of different ways. One, as I mentioned, you have uh, a lot of sailors who are not especially connected to religion. And then you have a lot of sailors who come from Protestant Christian backgrounds or who've been worked uh, or have been uh, experienced some form of conversion in these uh, evangelical uh, missionary spaces. And then you have sailors who come from more traditional religious backgrounds. So you have Catholic sailors, you have, especially in, um, uh, in the trades that go to like, the British East India Company, for example, you'll have a lot of say like Muslim Indian sailors. And then you'll have like, you know, as a whale ships that stop in the like Hawaiian islands, for example, to pick up additional crew for their journeys to the Pacific or into the Arctic. So you'll have sailors who come from both like um, missionary Christian and also like indigenous uh, religious backgrounds as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a whole different people of many different religious, whether practicing religious or religious backgrounds that get brought together on board these ships. And do they, did they successfully coexist on these ships, particularly ones where you're talking about, you know, Muslim and Indian religion, do they, you know, are they able to get along? Is there a conflict in, in what you're reading or? So in most of what I have read so far, there's not a lot of conflict along, along religious lines. Like it, it can happen at certain times, but for the most part, those are not the lines of, of conflict. And I think, you know, so for example, on East India ships, they had there's these these like very specific guidelines, right, of how you're supposed to treat your um, Southeast Asian, as they called them at the time, Lascar sailors. Mm-hmm. And uh, from the food that they receive and down to sort of their, their, they have a different sort of command structure. Like they'll have a sort of foreman who's in charge of them in the way that an officer might be in charge of the European crew. And so I've come across also things like where uh, during uh, Ramadan, for instance, that the uh, Lascar sailors are actually eating in a different boat. So they have like, they, they put down a boat and they like tow it behind the ship. And so they're, they're eating separately. And so in that way, like you have this sort of separation. And these are, I think you might call these different forms of coexistence. Like you have that sort of pulling apart and like these traditions are taking place here and the rest of the ship is doing the sort of generally European Christian background eating and drinking and and all of that sort of stuff. And then there's sort of just a sort of more blended coexistence of where the the sort of faith background is not as practiced as it might be in those cases. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, Protestant and Christian sailors that 
share the same space and are not necessarily heavily invested in having a sort of mass for Catholic sailors and who sort of get absorbed into the more general kind of sailor culture, sailors, spirituality. Interesting. That story about the Muslim sailors is so fascinating to me. And I wonder, does it originate as you know, a, a forced thing. Like, yeah, if you're going to be observing this, you're going to be in that boat and you're going to be over there. Or is it mm-hmm. a respect for someone else's religion? Or do you, is there any indicator of what the, the real motivation is for it? So from the record, I got, I think sort of in a way that I wouldn't want to speak like too generally here is it's not been like the main focus of my work, but in, uh, I think there's like sort of both of those things at work in a way where there's this idea of like, okay, here you have these sort of racially, religiously, culturally inferior sailors, and you just got to give them their parameters and treat them in this particular way. It's sort of like a mechanical way of like you put in, you do these inputs and because they are this way that we've defined already, like they will act in the, in, in, in the following ways and do the work that you want them to do. But also there is, I think, yeah, a, a, a desire on the part of sailors who are who have a religious tradition that is very different, um, and who uh, might not consume alcohol, and who might eat a very specific diet and eat at very specific times, to be able to keep that as a sort of sort of a source of strength and a source of comfort as they are um, sort of surrounded by this extremely different cultural context that obviously views them as as inferior. Hmm. It's interesting, too, that difference there that I found some examples of whaling ships where you could go on the ship and you could be, you know, Baptist and you get on the ship and it's like, great news. We're doing, you know, Methodist sermons every Sunday or whatever. And it's like, you know, congratulations. That's what you're you're going to be worshiping on the ship. So I find it pretty interesting that they, you know, they kept those kept those lines and weren't just saying, well, it's too bad that you're you're Muslim you know, you're going to have to deal with that, but actually, I don't know, somewhat facilitating that, that arrangement, you know, for the crew is is really interesting. And I think I would imagine a little different than what you're seeing on American ships in the, in the early to mid 1800s. I don't know that for sure, but, but I definitely know there's examples of that of like, it doesn't really matter, matter what religion you are. It's more what the captain's religion is. Religion is, and that's what you're going to have to deal with. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in this sense, in terms of uh, the sort of um, onboard, like whole ship spiritual functioning, I mean, the captain has so much importance. And that's why, you know, a lot of these missionary organizations end up trying to like reach out to a lot of captains because they know that they're the ones who are able to, you know, open the Bible on Sundays or at least make Sunday a day of rest. You yeah. know, or do a full, up 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 into a full what I've I've come across as well as a sort of full conversion of parts of the deck or uh, parts of the cabin into like a sort of makeshift church and to yeah. just like really try to re- replicate the experience of being at church on ship. Shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk more about superstition and organized religion, which is an interesting approach for me because I always kind of feel like it's a religion in itself for a lot of people, superstition. But what, um, can you talk about maybe some examples uh, of superstition and things like that that you found in your research? Yeah, yeah. So I think it is it is interesting as a, uh, uh, what you said about sort of superstition sort of 
comprising its, its own sort of uh, religious tradition, which is really kind of like what I'm interested in is how that, how it works like that. And I think a lot of, a lot of the things I've come across, like I think I mentioned it briefly, the example of like sailing on a Friday, it's bad luck yeah. to sail on a Friday. It's bad luck to whistle on board as you're going to call up the wind uh, and certain like so seeing certain animals is, is also attached to this. Like I mentioned, the mother carries chickens also, but better known today as storm petrels whose approach sort of betokens the onset of a storm or you have phenomena I've come across like seeing St. Elmo's fire and the sort of fear that that inspires as both um, the token either of bad weather or of the breaking of bad weather. But either way, as this sort of like, people seem to really uh, think this is like a horrible experience to see this, the kind of flame, you know, emerging on the mastheads or on the spars um, and what that might mean for what's what's coming for them it's interesting and i guess one of the things that i love about it is that so much of that still exists to this day and i've definitely sailed with people who are like pretty pretty over the top about whistling or right leaving a hatch open on the deck which is just not super safe anyway but (laughs) um but not even having an issue with the safety so much but the issue Mm -hmm. Um, the, with the bad luck that you'll bring. Yeah. I mean, I guess stepping through and falling through the hatch would be bad luck. But it's really <laughs> <Yeah>. fascinating. <laughs> and I think that one of the things that when I was teaching for, for a while, one of the things that I would teach about, you know, religion, a lot of it what separates it from, from cults and different religious movements is the longevity of it. And mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. fact that these things just become established over time and they just are. And Mm -hmm. we're coming up on centuries, at least, of the superstition still staying there and still being, you know, believed and respected by people. Um, I just find that so, as a historian, I find that so fascinating that you can read about these things in the, you know, 1500s and then go on a tall ship or a, a sailboat and you know, get scolded for whistling much in the same way that you would before. It's really kind of boggles my mind, but also like, I don't know, it's kind of exciting yeah. as a historian to come across that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's completely fascinating to think about some of the kind of hold that these things can have, even as, you know, uh, a sort of discourse of rationality might tell you that uh, these things can't really exist anymore because we know so much more about how the weather works yeah. or how that, you know, how, what causes wind. Uh, and so of course, nobody would think that, you know, whistling is going to do anything. Um, but I think this is, this really is the original, the basic question that I'm really like at the heart of it. I'm really interested in, which is what does the sea do to people? Yeah. And I think that, you know, no matter how technologically advanced that we might become, no matter how much we might understand about the sort of physical workings of the environment of the uh, of the oceans and of the weather, that there's it is always in some way going to be beyond people, especially because of how how overwhelming it is at times. Either in terms of you know being out at sea for long stretches of time and being just like tremendously bored. Like the these like day in day out routines and the sort of nothingness almost around you, yeah. Versus like these peaks of like absolute like terror and like storm and where you can't 
speak or hear or, or do anything like focus on survival. So I think that that relationship with the environment creates this really unique kind of tradition of belief. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was going to be one of my follow-up questions was, you know, what is it about the sea or being on the sea that leads people to develop these superstitions and spiritual beliefs? And I think you kind of just answered that there pretty well. I don't know. Is there anything you feel like you want to add to that, that prompt or that question? Yeah. Yeah. I think I would say that, you know, I've come to think of it as the sort of as the wind and the weather being these kind of like super supernatural forces. Mm-hmm. Like there's this, I don't know, there's the, uh, an old, like a recorded yarn basically that I came across, but there, there really aren't a lot of, just because a lot of this is just sort of sort of spoken or is, is operates so commonly that it, it doesn't, is not really worthy of notice. Like you come across these things, like maybe brief mentioned, Oh, it's the sailor superstition of this as though it's like common knowledge already. Yeah. Or this is very common or something, and then it's not really mentioned that much. Basically, of a of a yarn where the end of it is like the, uh, not even the devil can hold to his promise if he has like a Cape Horn gale against him in it. So the idea that like these these forces of wind and weather are even more in some ways powerful than the divine, and that like you know, when uh, you come across certain accounts, especially in missionary accounts of like sailors talking about, you know, or missionaries recording sailors talking about how, you know, in the height of the storm, like all curses are dropped and everybody gets to praying. But whether that, I think to a missionary, that's the signal of like, aha, yes, you do have this connection with the the true faith. But whether as what I'm thinking is that's more of a, this expression of like the, overwhelming power more overwhelming than the divine that happens in these moments or that you have to face in these moments. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I think you kind of put that all together really well and it it gives a lot of thought because yeah, it does seem uh, extra, extra, super, supernatural of, of these things that are these forces that you're up against. This is all like super fascinating to me and I love the way that this connects and again, still connects with people. Um, And I think that as a historian, I think it's always important to connect, you know, what your subject is to, to relevancy today Mm -hmm. and to how it connects with the world today. And this one is really cool because there are really these deep connections right now with, you know, people who are still practicing the superstition and this folklore. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's pretty cool that you get the opportunity to look at it at a historical sense. But have you thought about connecting this with people who are sailing currently and, you know, people who are out there in the world and looking at this, the superstitions that are active currently, or are you, or been in your mind at all? So I haven't, I haven't, it's, it's not work that I have really explored it on actually uh, carrying out, let's say. But it's something that I am very interested in. I think, um, like, for example, if, uh, there's this uh, this paper that I, I wrote where I talked a little bit about uh, whale skeletons and you know, the ones at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. And one of mm-hmm. them was sort of dragged up into on like the bow of a tanker as coming up in and, and wasn't noticed and then was spotted. And reading the article about it is that one of the crew of the ship is talking about how, you know, these because they're trying to figure out how the whale how the whale died and they weren't really certain about it 
was it actually being yeah. struck by the tanker? Was it already um, either extremely injured or dead by that time? And this, the sense of strange, just like, oh, there's, you know, these are kind of the kinds of things that happen at sea. And so I think it would be really interesting to look into the current world of the most, in, in some way, in terms of labor closely tied to what I look at, which is the tankers and cargo ships and large fishing, fishing vessels that continue to, you know, supply us with all the, the goods that we receive from around the world and have become way more invisible than they ever, ever were in the 19th century. Yeah. So in some ways, I'm not sure. I think some of the um, specific traditions might have more continuity in, in the world of sail that has been uh, preserved in, in things like tall ships and in a various other ways. But what I'd be really interested to know is what this kind of life is like for people who are working on these vessels. And it's very different now, of course, like things have sped up enormously. Crews are much, much smaller. You have much less time in port and you're, yeah, like I said, much less visible to the public eye than people have, than sailors pretty much have ever been or seafarers in general, I should say. Um, but I think there's a lot of really interesting things to do with that. Yeah. And I think that it's funny that you talk about that kind of invisibility because it's, I don't know. I was looking at the statistics recently, and I think our, our goods in the United States, like roughly eighty-five percent of like our, our general goods, travel by sea at some point, whether it's internationally or inland waterways. And yep. we just think about. I think the general theory for a lot of people or, or picture is that things are just traveling by air, and it's planes here and there, yep. and and you know trains are done, which isn't true. Yep. But so it's interesting that you say that because I totally agree with that kind of assessment that it is, has become for a lot of people this invisible form of, uh, of transportation that doesn't really exist when the reality is, is it's, it's a booming, booming industry shipping and, oh, yeah. and, and cargo. And we kind of, I think a lot of people forget that, um, which yep. the irony is that there's such an incredible demand for, for workers in that and labor that yeah. the reality is that there's, it's like a, such a great industry to get into. Um, mm -hmm. But that's kind of its own direction. So we've right. covered right. Yeah. A, a fair amount here and it's been awesome. And I have all of these other questions in my head that they would really put us on weird tangents. Um, <laughs> But looking at spirituality and the kind of the folklore and, and the superstition at sea, mm -hmm. is there anything you feel like that you want to touch on now or talk about that we haven't covered any weird tidbits or stories or anecdotes or. So I think, yeah, I think there's one more thing I'd like to emphasize yeah. just to be, just to be um, sort of, I don't know, not complete, but uh, judicious. And now I talk about it, which yeah. is that I really, what I, what's really, really important to me in this work is that, like this is not separate from the kinds of like what, what we might now consider as like pragmatic or uh, everyday forms of like work that sailors are engaged in, mm -hmm. that this is as much of, this is like really part of like everyday life um, yeah. and everyday predicting either the, mostly the more immediate future or on the other hand, understanding how you work. Yeah. And understanding the sort of the environment around you and what it's telling you and how you're interacting with it. And as for as for stories, there's these lots of it's amazing actually researching in, in, in logbooks and in journals. 
especially logbooks, because my like you read enough of those and you read like again and again, it becomes just like very repetitive process. And then suddenly these like you have these little moments that mm-hmm. sort of burst out of the page or something becomes really, uh, really fascinating. Or the same thing in journals. I think what's really interesting about especially in terms of thinking about sailors and invisibility even in like journals of passengers or, or, you know, officers or anything like sailors still, just like in logbooks, will really fade out of sight. And you can almost see it's like the vessels working itself, but then they'll sort of come back in at these particular moments mm-hmm. um, that are always really interesting. And one of the, one of the most sort of helpful and sort of synthesizing a lot of the stuff that I, I've, I've been talking about reading was this, these journals of a, a, Eventually, eventually, an admiral in the British Navy named Albert Hastings Markham, who was particularly fascinated in uh, Arctic exploration, mm-hmm. sort of reaching a higher latitude. At one point, he sails with a Scottish whaling vessel called the Arctic to the Arctic. And at the beginning, he's just talking about how this guy is the, to me, he's one of the ultimate Victorians, mm-hmm. uh, sort of like really sort of sense of like morality where when he uh, he kills a lot of animals and he'll write about it in this really strange way, where it's actually kind of hard to understand that he's the one doing it. But like, oh, this poor bear approached the ship and received like this very uh, unwelcome response to its curiosity. You're like, oh, you you shot it in the head is what you're trying to <laughs> Yeah. Um, but he, he talks about this stuff and like how the crew of the vessel end up burning effigies of two of themselves who luck has kind or bad luck is kind of attached to this luck is this really really fascinating important force and kind of studying this kind of thing but that yeah they were uh instead of sort of being treated with suspicion or or fear or caution they take this sort of almost like very pragmatic approach is oh you have this bad luck that's attached to you well we're going to make a a dummy of you and we're going to burn it and then you'll sort of be released and this sort of it's just incredibly fascinating to me like the mobility of luck what you can do with it or you can't do with it I come yeah. across another journal of a, a a boy who's on his first voyage and you know he's you know, going through all all the sort of adjustments that any any sailor on their first voyage out has to go through the seasickness the not really understanding what's being screamed at him to do um, sort of the kinds of hazing that that uh, you receive often at the hands of older sailors. But then hearing, he eventually starts recording that, how the older sailors tell him that the ship is unlucky. And he just gradually like becomes to believe it. And that's like a much more immovable, immovable force. Yeah. So like, the real fascination of how this can be sort of this really sticky and hard, like impossible to get rid of thing or, or that there's methods you can do to work with it. And it's very... Just very changeable and shifting, even as it has these like recognizable patterns that you can see sort of throughout the century getting recorded over and over again. Two thoughts on that. The first is that how uncomfortable it must be when someone's like burning you an effigy and you're sitting there like <laughs> watching this, I feel like it has to be really surreal. And then when you have this thought of like, Jesus, what's next? Like if this doesn't work. <laughs> You know, I feel like you get a pretty clear picture of where this is going if it doesn't work. So that's yeah, one thing yeah. that I feel like, God, that must be so uncomfortable. But but I think the way that you were just talking about luck again in that, I guess that there's this very practical knowledge you have to have when you're working on board a ship and you have to be able to 
you know, understand your role and your job and how it fits in with the greater mechanics and working of the ship. And so it's very, it's very textbook, you know, you mm-hmm. learn what lines that you need to, to hold and what, what you need to do. And then again, the way you described it as this force, there's this whole other education, it sounds like that has to take place for you to really understand the, I almost said the science of it, but it's not really a science of it. Um, but, but I find it really fascinating that you then have to navigate this other education that you're going to get on how to manage luck. This one thing mm-hmm. that is, you know, realistically, you know, un- unmanageable. Um, but that's a really fascinating thing of, I think you can understand the physics of how a ship moves and how mm-hmm. hoisting this line manipulates this, which contributes to this greater part of the ship. So mm-hmm. if you get some fundamentals down, you'll be able to intuitively get the rest. But there's no intuition of like when you're whistling and someone's like, you're going to whistle up a storm and you're confused mm-hmm. or, or these other weird points of luck. That's, there's no intuition. You need that hard education on it, you know? Right. It's just, yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's really fascinating and really kind of a curious thing that I've, I've never thought about it in that sense that you will need that education when you go on board a ship because whether you believe it or not, everyone else does. And so you need to be able to, to fit in and, and walk that line with them. It's right. It's and yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's going to be operative no matter what you think. And I think also the way you described it right now uh, brings me a, to another thought, which I kind of think about a lot, which has this really interesting parallel with like the weather and the wind itself mm-hmm. where you have things like, you know, like the trade winds, right. There's yeah. this sort of like, both this like constant, you know, you know, they're very predictable, um, especially, you know, at their mid-century when you have uh, like Matthew Fontaine Mari and the publication of these, you know, wind charts and sea routes and these things become more and more regularized, but you still have, you know, I've seen it in across like a variety of log books. You sort of reach things like where are the trade winds? They're not yeah. here, like you expect them to be here. So you both have these combinations of regularity and predictability as well as this like tremendous irregularity or uncertainty where even the things that should be fairly solid, I mean, as far as wind goes, can still be um, uncertain. Yeah. And I think like luck kind of works in a very similar way. Yeah. And I think it really helps you cope with that, that uncertainty of being able to say, well, you know, we're in this part of the world where these winds should be blowing and they're not. So clearly it's someone's fault here, you know, on this right. ship. Like that's the only logical thing. Um, how that, I guess, how that transmits into an explanation. And, and I think personally, in the end, it's all about control. And it's all mm-hmm. about you're dealing with forces over which you have no control. And, you know, looking particularly at, at superstition and, and things like that, I would imagine there's that comfort there that it's giving you control of knowing like, okay, we, we checked off these boxes. We did these, we definitely didn't do these things. So, so, Mm -hmm. you know, we're good. And um, yeah, I think that's. Yeah. And right. And like, even as a lot of these things that you're, you're supposed to do aren't in the control of sailors, right? Like they have no say really about what day, like a vessel leaves the port or Mm -hmm. they have no say about, uh, who is going to be with them on board the ship. Yeah. So it's this way in which it both sort of, like at certain points, it's able to direct 
behavior. Like there's that, that, that voyage that I mentioned of the Arctic is that they are ready for sea on a Friday, but end up leaving on a Saturday. Yeah. And, but that, and the, so it, it can sort of shift these things and, and really direct behavior, but in the other times it's something you just sort of have to deal with. Yeah. Like if you're a sailor on a ship that's unlucky, you have nowhere to go. And if it's the ship that you, what can you, you can't really do anything. You can't really even, uh, you know, treat it differently in a way you still have yeah. to do the same work to keep it going. So it's both this sort of active thing where you can try to manage and uh, shape or shift behavior or anything like that. And also just a sort of a more, maybe passive isn't the right word, but I'll use that for now, but a sort of way of understanding at least what's happening around you, even if that doesn't necessarily translate directly into uh, how you act or what you do. Yeah. This is all been so great and I, I love talking about this stuff and I could like I said go off on weird tangents for hours okay. <laughs> but it does seem like a great place to um to to put a pin on it so to speak so I want to thank you a lot for doing this episode and I'm really excited about it and I think it's really going to connect with people um and so I know that you are working on your dissertation and mm-hmm. Hopefully, I, I think it's a great subject and it should be out there in book form at some point. And so I think that we'll definitely keep our our audience surprised of what you're doing in this area. I think it's, great. it's a very cool area that hasn't been dug into as much as it should. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm hopeful that yeah, soon there will be more to share in other formats. And you know, it's been really, really great to talk about it. Besides a couple of conferences, this is really one of my first times sort of talking about it in full in a public setting. And that's super, super exciting. So nice. thank you so much. You're welcome. I really want to thank Brooke Grassberger for joining us. Uh, we'll certainly be keeping you updated on where she's going. And I have a feeling you'll probably see her in the future uh, connected to tall ships and to her academic work, which I really just find so fascinating. So thank you, Brooke, for joining us. A Barker Brig and a Schooner Shape History is a Tall Ships America podcast. For more information on tall ships and the people who sail them, please visit tallshipsamerica.org. And as always, if you have any questions for me, any ideas for episodes, anything you want to correct me on, uh, any questions at all, please feel free to email me at nicholas at tallshipsamerica.org. That's N-I-C-O-L-A-S at tallshipsamerica.org.